Luminance Insights, webinar on the future of AI and its impact on the legal profession with keynote speaker, Mike Lynch. Okay, so now proper introduction. So good morning, good afternoon, and good evening, depending upon where you are joining us from in the world today. Uh, welcome to the next installment of our thought leadership webinar series. My name is Jason Brennan. I am president of the Americas for Luminance, and I'm gonna be leading the discussion today with Dr. Michael Lynch, FRS. Uh, let me just start by thanking all of you for joining us today. We certainly hope you, your colleagues and respective families are all safe uh, and adapting to the new normal um, in, in what's going on in the uh, environment today. Just as a quick bit of uh, background on myself, I have been in the legal industry for uh, my entire career, starting as a practicing attorney and then transitioning into the business of law with a focus on legal technology for most of the past 15 years. And over my years in the legal industry, I really had the opportunity to witness significant evolution and transformation in the way the legal model has developed and how services are provided to end clients. And really the fundamental uh, basis for that has been technology uh, in my experience and contributing to that continued evolution. And so it's with that context that I'm extremely honored to be able to lead a discussion today with Dr. Lynch, uh, as one of the true visionaries in the technology space today. So that was a little bit about me, uh, just a couple of minutes. I know we wanna get to the main event uh, about Luminance um, and how that fits into the discussion. So at Luminance, we are extremely proud to be the most advanced artificial intelligence platform for the legal profession. Uh, our technology helps legal professionals review and analyze documents at faster speeds and with greater confidence levels than traditional methods. From a customer standpoint, today we support more than 225 clients across 45, 48 countries. So it's really a global uh, client base. That list includes over a fifth of the top 100 global law firms, all of offices of all of the big four and a growing list of global corporations as well. And we support these clients across a wide range of use cases, which require the review and analysis of information. Uh, and that can be in areas such as M&A due diligence, lease abstraction, exposure analysis, e-discovery in the litigation space, document drafting, and the list goes on. So really a wide variety of use cases there. But really the single fundamental uh, consistent point across all those use cases is our technology. And our fundamental technology behind Luminance is our legal inference transformation engine, LIGHT. We wouldn't be in the legal space without an acronym. Our acronym is LIGHT. Uh, which is really the technology that's been built from a blend of unsupervised and supervised machine learning and pattern recognition techniques developed at the University of Cambridge. And the power of this technology really enables Luminance to not only form an understanding of the documents that uh, are being processed, but then to augment this knowledge by learning from the interaction between legal professionals and the matters that they're working on. Uh, our light engine is, uh, as I said, extremely powerful. It can automatically perform tasks, including uh, document clustering, bringing documents together, identifying deviations uh, from standards, uh, extracting data, filtering, um, and even identifying anomalies, which would be differences from either the standards in a data set or through a new feature that we've uh, launched looking at differences to model clauses that users can establish. So it's really a wide range of very powerful features to help with that document review and analysis, both in terms of getting through large pools of data and 
getting rid of things that aren't quite as important, but then equally as important, finding the things that you're really looking for. And in terms of differentiation in the market, and I'll end it on this, um, you know, there are other tools out there. We feel very strong about our uh, differentiation within the market. Uh, first and foremost, Luminance requires very little setup, no machine pre-training, and requires minimal user training. Feel that's very powerful from the perspective of allowing a wider range of professionals to use the system very quickly across a very wide range of use cases that I mentioned before. Uh, the platform is also language and jurisdiction agnostic, so it's ex extremely flexible. And this is really the power of that unsupervised learning that I talked about before, which is identifying patterns in language without the need to truly understand up front what the meaning is behind those lang that the, the language. So it can find those patterns. It can um, be uh, accessible across numerous languages and use cases, jurisdictions, et cetera. Uh, the platform does include, and this is a, a point of differentiation we've seen a lot in the modern environment, um, numerous project management and collaboration features, which allow for enhanced workflows in situations where teams are distributed either across offices or geographies. Uh, and in, again, in today's work from home uh, global environment, we've seen a lot of clients taking advantage of that. And then certainly last but not least, uh, Luminance is, is, and this is one near and dear to my heart as a former practicing attorney, Luminance is not output-based, right? Requires, doesn't require legal professionals to take a blind leap of faith into the use of technology, which is sometimes difficult for legal professionals. And so you're working within the system uh, and there's total transparency. Legal professionals have the ability to perform QA, QA and QC and really increase their confidence levels at their own pace. Uh, I feel that's, that's very powerful and, and we've seen that from our client base. So as I hope you can tell, I'm incredibly proud to be a part of uh, an amazing organization with truly differentiated technology. If you would like to learn more, please uh, send a note through today uh, with uh, the question function or feel free to go on our website and there are links you can find as well. We'll promptly get back to you and we welcome that opportunity. So now the main event, uh, appreciate that uh, background and, and some context. And uh, as I mentioned before and earlier, I'm extremely honored to be speaking with one of the true visionaries in the tech industry. It would be virtually impossible to cover all of Mike's achievements and accolades in short order. So I'm just going to go through a few of his many highlights. Mike is of course, extremely well known for being the founder of Autonomy, which he established in 1996, based on technology invented at Cambridge University. Where Dr. Lynch studied information sciences, received a PhD in machine learning, and uh, he also held research on adaptive pattern recognition. He served uh, as the CEO of Autonomy for over 15 years, and during that time, it became one of Europe's most successful technology companies. Following that, Mike later switched gears a bit and founded investment company Invo Capital in 2012 with the mission to invest in and support leading technology businesses emerging across Europe. His main, uh, main portfolio companies within uh, Invoke include Luminance, which I've just described a little bit for you, and also uh, another major player is Darktrace. That's a leading global cyber AI company, which now has a valuation in excess of $2 billion. Mike has been the recipient of numerous awards and recognitions, and again, I'll just name a few. Uh, Mike was awarded an OBE for service, uh, services to enterprise in 2006. 
Mike sits on various boards, including the BBC and British Library. He was elected to the Prime Minister's Council for Science and Technology in 2011. This body is currently chaired by Patrick uh, Valance, uh, a name some of you might be familiar with given his current work with the UK government around uh, the science of coronavirus. Uh, seen him uh, quite a few times lately on the, on the TV. Mike is a fellow of the Royal Academy of Engineering and an honorary fellow of Christ College, Cambridge. He was also elected as a fellow of the Royal Society, uh, UK's eminent scientific body whose fellows have included a list of uh, names that might be familiar to some of us. Um, I'll name a few of those, Isaac Newton, Charles Darwin, Michael Faraday, Albert Einstein, Alan Turing, um, just to name a few. I think uh, we've all probably heard a few of those names in the past. So look, uh, I've gone well into my time and hopefully I haven't used all of our time, but uh, it's really a privilege for me to introduce Dr. Michael Lynch, FRS. Mike, thank you for joining us today. Good morning. So Mike, I wanted to begin uh, with a little bit of uh, some basics really. Uh, let's turn to AI. Artificial intelligence is a term that is discussed extensively today. It is also a term that uh, is used by people in many different ways. This is something that's been a big part of your life. You started working in this area during your days uh, at Cambridge and University in the 1980s. Can you just give us a quick view of what's happened since then? Yeah, so um, the subject, the, the attempt to make something that's intelligent obviously goes back a long way, and you know, even to the old mechanical automata that, uh, that people try to used to sort of show off apparent intelligence. And then in the 60s, uh, when you had really the very first computers, people looked at different ways of doing the problem. Then what we had in the 80s was um, the first big sort of wave of, of AI, and uh, it was referred to in the press, and the, the term was coined. And this was what we would now call expert systems. So, you know, the idea that we understand the problems that we're trying to solve, and if we can just write down enough rules, so you know, if then else, basically, um, you could put all that into a computer and you would have intelligence. And uh, there was a lot of excitement, and as often the case with AI, um, turned out the problem was rather harder than that. And something we'll probably talk about in a minute as to why. And uh, and then the thing went into uh, the sort of trough of disillusionment. And that's really when I got involved. So when I started doing work in the field uh, in the 80s, you know, unlike now where everyone wants to talk about AI, you know, you mentioned that at a party and people moved away from you. So it's a very different world. Hmm. There was one big breakthrough really uh, in the 80s, which was a way of rather than defining the problem, you allowed the machine to learn. And for these problems, it turns out that's crucial because actually how you define a problem um, it's a bit like the old children's story of asking the genie for something. You have to be very careful going to get the right answer. Um, and so I was involved in, in what I think has turned out to be some pretty important work back then. Um, people started to understand that this was a very radical, different approach. Um, and then that work continued over the years. And what we've seen in the last 10 years is some real breakthroughs in getting this learning by watching the world approach to AI to work and a whole series of key problems that were really not solvable have become solvable. 
And that's what's really generated all the excitement and uh, led to things that couldn't be done before being done. Um, the difficulty is that because we've got this breakthrough moment, we also get a vast amount of hype and we get a lot of claims and uh, a lot of the basics are forgotten. And you know, you can't open a newspaper these days without reading it in the eye. And the interesting thing about it is a lot of the commentary is actually because AI is one of those things where because we all think, we think we know how we think, and we think therefore we know how a machine would think, and then you get reams of the commentary. So hopefully today we can bring it back to the reality of what works, what doesn't work, and, and what these things are really about. Well, let's start there, Mike, because you you know appreciate that context through, uh, through through the various times at time that you've been associated with artificial intelligence. How would you define it to the layperson? Uh, because again, as you point out, we use it everywhere. It's in magazines. It's in articles. Everybody kind of means something different. How would you define artificial intelligence in a simplistic way? Well, I, I, you know, at the end of the day, it's an attempt to make a machine intelligent. But actually, if we're having a conversation, which is one of better word, an engineering rather than a solid uh, philosophy conversation, where we're trying to solve a problem, um, I actually wouldn't get too bothered about how you define it um, for the purposes of, you know, a practicing lawyer or a practicing doctor or someone actually trying to do something with AI. Uh, the big difference. Uh, in what has happened is this data-driven, self-learning approach to intelligence. Um, so we can go through lots of different definitions of what's meant by intelligence, but in terms of useful AI, really it's about systems that learn the complexity of real-world problems and then infer how to deal with and at this stage, it's probably very important to, to introduce another definition which gets completely forgotten about uh, in a lot of the commentary, which is the concept of narrow AI, broad AI. So narrow AI is where you train a machine to solve a particular problem. So it might be speech recognition, or it might be you know, identifying things in a photograph, um, or indeed clauses in a legal contract. And that's narrow AI. Narrow AI has seen phenomenal advances in the technology in the last five years, for example. The other category is what's called broad AI, which is what we do as human beings and what my dog does. And that's <laughs> the ability to handle the whole of the real world. And uh, the problem with that is that I'm not just looking at one problem there, I'm looking at all the things that could happen. And um, so, for example, from, you know, if I wanted to make um, a machine that could chase rabbits and catch them, uh, that actually would be very easy to do now. It could have a camera and it could spot a rabbit and it could look after it and it catch it. It's fine. However, if I wanted to recreate an urban fox that could survive um, all of the things it has to deal with, the neighbor's dog getting run over by the bus at night, then that's way beyond where we are at the moment. So the important difference here is that you have narrow AI and you have broad AI. And it's very um, tempting as humans to assume that that's a continuum. Um, if you make a better and better narrow AI, eventually you'll get a broad AI. One of the things you've learned when you work in this subject for decades is those, um, those ideas of a continuum of development um, have often turned out to be very disappointing. 
time. So, you know, you get something working quite well and you think if you just use a bigger, faster computer, it'll work. Uh, it doesn't work like that in these, these kind of projects. So, you know, we can have long debates about whether broad AI is coming and when it will come and all this sort of stuff. But the important thing to understand is just because we're seeing success in this narrow AI area doesn't mean that we're necessarily going to see broad AI. Um, you know, that could be something that we could be discussing five years or 500 years. So I'm, I'm dating myself, Mike, but within that context, uh, you know, I, I guess in my childhood, it was uh, the Terminator, right? Was the movie, uh, the Hollywood movie at the time of machines taking over the world. Um, and I guess within that context, it's a little bit of that broad AI that you talk about as opposed to the narrow, but uh, we don't see that happening anytime soon, do we? Well, it, it, again, it, it, it's about understanding problems. So I would not want to be chased uh, through a poke apocalyptic world by an AI comes to kill a drone, as we've seen in, in Terminator, because it will get you, okay? But would the human race lose a battle with them? No, because the hunter killer drone won't understand its own supply chain uh, or where its components are going to come from or, you know, complex strategies that might use many different things other than the moment of the chase. And that's the difference between narrow AI and broad AI. So I think at the moment, um, uh, you know, I wouldn't be worrying about um, the AI coming and doing us down. I think we have enough to worry about with the humans doing that first. <laughs> fair, fair enough, Mike. So, so then to take this back to a, a place short of that, um, you know, where where are your vision today? Obviously, it, 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 there's been a lot of development since your your research days at, at Cambridge, in terms of the practical realities, and maybe even more specifically to to the legal profession, um, uh, given the audience on the phone today, what are some of the practical realities of, of where you think the technology can be focused, or, or perhaps shouldn't be focused? Well, I think the the point is there are a series of tasks that are done in the legal profession, which it turns out can be um, greatly aided by AI. And there are other tasks that um, are way beyond. Uh, the ability of an AI to do. And so a lot of what we're looking at when applying these things is looking at the tasks which uh, you can free up the creativity and the special abilities of, of a professional lawyer to do and leave behind a lot of the, um, the work which can be done by machine is often highly repetitive. So a very simple example in, in discovery. Um, it might be that you know I'm interested in the fact that in a particular transaction, um, large amounts of meat were, I don't know, uh, shipped, and it turns out that they were condemned meat and it was relabeled, and that's the basis of the case. Well, at the moment, if I'm using keywords or something like that, I might type in lots of keywords and I'd get lots of hits back. And in a large corpus of, of the legal profession has to deal with these things, very many of those hits are going to have nothing to do with. Um, the issue that I'm actually researching. For example, it might be that uh, beef is on in the canteen at lunchtime. And so although we've been used to this idea that we define the problem, and there I'm taking the real problem, which was my legal case about mislabeled meat, um, and I then reduce that to searching for keywords, actually the vast majority of what I'm getting back has got nothing to do with the legal case. Now, if you can use an AI that can look at all of that comes back and says, well, look, all of this is to do with the canteen, 
and this is to do with someone sending a recipe to their husband for dinner tonight versus my legal case, um, then you immediately save a vast amount of work because the machine understands the context, it understands what you're looking for, what you, you want. So you've got those situations. And then there's the whole area where we haven't really even realized that we're missing something. And so this is the ability of the machine to say, oh, I've read these 10 million documents. And if you're interested in that sort of thing, well, over here, that kind of thing's happening. You didn't even know that that was a possibility. You didn't even know to look for it. Uh, and that's another important area where the machine can be incredibly powerful. And in many legal applications, if you want to produce very good client service, what we want is the key answers very quickly. I don't know, you're rung up by a regulator. They want to, uh, they're playing hardball with you. You want to really understand whether you've got an issue there. Well, you're starting from a position where you probably have no idea what's actually gone on, who's done what where. The ability of these systems to look at 10 million documents and come back in a very short amount of time and actually say, well, you really ought to look at this. This looks like there might have been some bribery going on. In this That's an incredible powerful thing. And then very valuable to the client. Could we dig into that a little bit, Mike? Because I, I, I know what, what you're speaking to and, it, and a big part of Luminance, as I mentioned before, is this combination of supervised and unsupervised learning. And I think that comes to, to some of the things you're saying. So would you mind explaining for the larger group the difference between supervised and unsupervised, perhaps in the context of what you just described? I think it would be very helpful. Yeah, it, it may actually be better at this point to take an even broader starting point for that question, which is, um, the concept of a rule or a definition is the legacy way of doing things and then supervised and unsupervised. Uh, I have an example I used when I was teaching with undergraduates to show them how ineffective rules are in the real world. Because everyone assumes that if you can just write down exactly the definitions of what you're looking for, somehow it can become easy to An example I use is a very trivial one. It is, I just say to them, I want you to write me a set of rules that will allow me to work out whether an object is a tree or a bush. So it's an incredibly simple problem. And it turns out that if we were to get 112 year olds in a room, they pretty much agree for any photo we can put up in front of them. So somehow it's known what that definition is by 12 year olds. And of course, the students start and uh, uh, they'll often start with height. And then it turns out that there are bushes that are higher than other things we call a tree. Of course, you can get the exception processing of the bonsai tree and etc. And it's quite good fun because you have these incredibly intelligent students who've never thought that this would be, you know, they think you're wasting their time when you start. Mm. And whatever definitions they come up with, you can find the counter case, that whole pile of photographs. And no one ever disagrees with the counter case. It says that we all know what we think we're talking about. But we can't express it because it's actually quite subtle. There's all sorts of um, interplay in that. And by the time I end that session, I will have about four or five pages of if then else type definition, and it still won't work. And so the reality of the world is for these kind of problems, it's very hard to be extremely um, precise in how you define things. Another nice example is you know, if you have a picture. Is this a dog? Turns out to be an incredibly difficult problem because they come in all sorts of different sizes. But again, we all know 
sort of conflict. So the way in which that's been solved in this new era of AI is, is what's called supervised learning. So we let the machine, just like the 12 year old has, work out without even really explicitly knowing it sometimes what the rules are. So there you're, you're doing, you're sending, you're showing it a photo and you're saying, this is a dog, this is not a dog, this is another dog. And then it learns. And the important thing about this learning is that the relationships are not the way in which we, particularly as lawyers, have learned. So when we use language and we explain something, because of the limitations of language, we tend to use a very small number of ideas in a very definite way. If A and B in the presence of C, then E. So if you ask someone, why did the airplane crash happen? Probably have three or four items. But the real world is actually a lot more complex. Um, many of the things we do every day will have a hundred items. In, and the relationships will be very subtle. They'll be shades of gray. So for example, if you drive a car, you drive your car around a bend, um, the speed at which you drive that car around the bend is a subconscious combination of a very large number of observations, even things like whether you saw a lamppost. And if I asked you why you drove that car around the bend, you'd write a very simple explanation because of the weather or the road seemed clear, but actually you're doing a lot more complex. And so that's what the supervised learning is allowing us to do. By example, the machine is generating all of that understanding but the thing about supervised learning is you have to have lots of examples and you have to know what you want the machine to do so i want you to tell me if there's a dog in this picture uh, and then the machine learns how to do that and that's the one of the big breakthroughs that we've seen unsupervised learning is uh, a fascinating idea it's if you're a lawyer you imagine if you took all of the documents in the filing cabinet and um, you dropped the filing cabinet and they went all over the floor and you said to someone some poor intern probably put that lot back into piles and then at that point you don't even know what's in those documents but as you start reading the documents you start to realize oh this seems to go with that one over there this seems to go with this one over here and you end up with a series of piles and what you've done is worked out finding the information what's different and what's the same but you didn't know in advance what it was you were looking for and that's unsupervised learning and that's incredibly powerful for the things uh, which are often very high value um, in legal questions because it's the, the, the surprises uh, the things that you don't know about and of course often in in free technology applications uh, in the legal profession We've relied solely on the wisdom of, of people who've had a lot of experience. Get a, just feel, this feels wrong. I saw this document, and it feels like there's something funny going on here. Well, that's often the area where unsupervised learning can help. And of course, the power is due to That's great. Well, I'm gonna shift gears a little bit, Mike. I mean, this is uh, extremely, interesting uh, i've got a lot more question in that regard but i want to cover cover a couple of different areas today for our audience so let's shift a little bit uh to commercial applications of ai um, again i go back uh, every company seems to be talking about ai all you hear about are algorithms and models and 
to the to the typical lawyer, and there are many very tech savvy lawyers out there. Uh, it's a little overwhelming. Um, how do you test AI? How do you know if it works? Can I just trust these algorithms that you tell me are the best algorithms out there? What What is your experience in that regard or advice, Mike? Well, the first thing to say is that AI is now a marketing term. So uh, at Invoke, we don't get an investment company project the word AI in it. Um, so just because someone's written AI doesn't mean there's any AI involved. In fact, this term has been used for So you do have to actually, and the great thing about the kind of problems that we're talking about here is, you know, the the problem is actually relatively straightforward uh, to state. It might be harder to solve, and so you can do a test. So a very simple example is if we were to take um, a series of documents and we want to find the clauses, uh, we can take those documents, we can get a lawyer to um, find those clauses, and we can see whether the machine and the lawyer are doing the same thing. Now, at this point, something very interesting happens, in that for most of these problems, there isn't always an exact right answer. There'll be some cases where there's a debate. And so, for example, we might have a situation where the lawyer and the machine agree about the clauses 97% of the time. And then the mistake that sometimes I see happening is people say, oh, well, the machine's 97% accurate. But actually, what you have to do is you have to get two lawyers. And then if the two lawyers agree 97% of the time and the machine agrees 97% of the time, then you're pretty much as accurate as being fast. And what you're actually learning is that there's 3%, which is a matter of opinion in that problem. Um, so, Doing the test, which is absolutely um, an example of the problem you want to do. Things you have to be really, really careful about are very easy to teach an AI system to learn uh, an example set or training set. And those systems, if you train it on a set of photographs and you show it the same photograph, what it learns is it's always trying to cheat the male. What it learns is the individual examples. It doesn't learn what makes a dog a dog. So if, for example, a vendor comes up and they allow you to test the system, it will get stunning results. It ought to because it's learned the example. So you must always come with your own examples when you do a test. And you put those in, and then the test of that is it can't have learned that example because you've never seen it. It has to have learned the actual meaning or definition or essence of, I don't know, change of contract. So the most important thing in looking at these systems is to actually um, test in the problem that you're doing using your own data. And then when you score it, be very careful to do this, you need more than one opinion as to what's right. And that will get you very good results. And then the other thing now is that this area is becoming mature enough Obviously, you can talk to other people that have experience of the system, and that will give you a very practical idea about where they're useful and where they're not. Very helpful, Mike. Thank you. And at, at Luminance, as, as you know, uh, we, we test that. We encourage our, our clients to do pilots and live projects. 
to your point so that they can see exactly how it works in their documents in a real life situation outside of a controlled test environment. So uh, pretty powerful there. Mike, I'm gonna ask you to move a little closer to the mic. I think um, been reported uh, there's some difficulties hearing you. So uh, we want everybody to have that opportunity. And maybe I'll close out this category with one last question. I've got one last category I'd like to move to. But Mike, we talked a little bit about narrow, broad AI, the Terminator, the future, current applications, uh, your time from Cambridge and, and how far technology has come. If we were to look forward to the next 10 to 20 years, um, what do you think that looks like in terms of R&D in, in the artificial intelligence space and what can consumers expect over that time frame in your mind? Well, let's understand what the big limitations are of AI at the moment. So putting aside the, the sort of massive leap to broad AI, the biggest problem you have in most applications is what's called exception processing. So for example, today we could make a driverless vehicle that nearly all the time would be fine driving around the roads. But then real, every so often you get an exception. So the example I, I, I use here is any of you ever been um, lucky enough to go to uh, Italy to the Amalfi Coast, you may remember there's that lovely windy road along the coast. And if you've ever um, been along that road, you'll see that at some point two tourist buses meet head on. And when you look at this, the laws of physics dictate that it's not possible for these two buses to pass each other. And so you have a problem. And actually the problem gets resolved in a way which is quite mystical, which involves various um, Italian people swearing at each other and all sorts of things. And, and somehow the laws of physics are suspended and the two buses get passed and the road opens up. Well, that whole process, even though it's about driving, is about negotiating, reading the other person, compromise. For an AI to do all of that would be very, very difficult. The difficulty there is that if we have driverless buses and the driverless buses meet, then very soon you're going to have that road blocked because the AI can't handle the exception. Another example would be, you know, uh, I don't know, an autonomous um, uh, lorry on the road, a truck, and suddenly there's smoke coming out of the back of it. Now, the way that would work in a non-autonomous vehicle is that other drivers would probably drive up next to the cab and start waving and gesticulating. And then the driver's got an interesting decision because is this a hijack attempt or um, is there something wrong with my lorry? And again, the assessment of that will be down to all sorts of things. And what does the car look like? What does the person look like? Have I had more than one person do this? And what you can't have in that situation, if it was an uh, autonomous vehicle, you can't have it immediately stopping and being hijacked, nor can you have it careering down the road on fire. So one of the things you're going to see is a, a lot of ability to start to deal with exception processing. At the moment, a great way of dealing with exception processing is to say, I can handle many cases and the hundredth I give to the human. But there's some applications where that can't be the case. I think the other thing we're going to see is combining technologies. So we're already starting to see this where you know, we have AI doing speech recognition now, which is more accurate, the, the, the deep learning methods more accurate than any other approach. We have them doing translation. The deep learning methods are more accurate than any other approach. You have them doing inference. Um, you could have them at the same time be able to see something 
And what hasn't happened yet is really the fusion of many of these different pieces of information together. We're still very siloed in how that information is, is combined. And I think that will lead to um, a big step forward uh, in the power of these things. And then the other side of it is us learning how to work differently, learning how we can let go of the tedious bit, let the machine get through 99% of it, and then really bring the value that we bring to them on the 1% magic bit. And uh, that's going to require some letting go and confidence working with machines in a different way. And of course, it's also the same from the AI's point of view. An AI that sets out to do 100% of the problem will usually fail because humans are incredible. Uh, but what you want to do is it to be able to say, I can do this 98% of the problem perfectly. It's 2% I'm going to give to the human to do. And so there's that balance that is sometimes called augmented intelligence, which is actually the fact. It, uh, your statements at the end, end there, Mike, remind me, uh, I, I was in a, a panel at the legal forum once and uh, I shared the, the comment had come up about AI taking over legal jobs and should people be worried? And it was funny because I look back early in my career and again, I'm dating myself, but we used to do blacklining of documents by hand, right? You take two documents and you put them side by side and you take a ruler and you look at it and these were highly paid lawyers um, performing the service, looking at differences. And when Word and other tools came by and did that automatically, uh, we weren't fearful that the legal profession was going to go away, right? It actually enhanced what we spent our time doing. Uh, and it was a task we were all very happy to see go away. But um, changing behavior uh, is, is a big one that, that we see and uh, will definitely impact. Um, and I think the clients will expect more. Mm -hmm. um, you know, they, they will expect you to be adding much more insight to the advice you're giving them. You know, things like in litigation, early case assessment uh, is going to become a, a high value add um, to give your clients. You know, they want to know whether they've got a problem. Should they settle? What, how much should they settle for? You know, is there an unknown um, trap in this litigation? And you know, that, that's something, if you've got to do discovery and you're doing keyword searches and you're working through the old methods, you tend to find out that stuff after quite a long time and quite a lot of expense. Whereas with something like early case assessment given by AI, um, you know, literally within hours. And similarly on the M&A side, you know, an M&A actually is a negotiation. And being able to know the weaknesses of the other side and the excuses for negotiating earlier in the process can be a big advantage for your client over um, the other side of that deal. You know, suddenly finding that they have a problem here, and you can go back to them and start to do something. So I think we're going to see the um, offerings from law firms get a little bit more um, about helping the client with their problem and adding value using the um, the skills of the professionals in the law firm um, and doing that around the way that helps the client, giving them the answers they need first. And that's so, yes, there will be a development of new things. I, I think it's an incredibly powerful point. Um, earlier in the process across anything is easier, right? Uh, in an M&A deal, when can you actually have the best chance of renegotiating price or value early on. In a litigation, 
you're looking at settlements, you're looking at negotiation strategies, uh, having that power up front. And so sooner is, is definitely enhancing power. And, uh, the yeah. in discovery is just um, what you want to discover. You know, normally there's a negotiation about what the discovery will cover. Well, if early on you can find that actually there's this whole area that's relevant to the case that isn't in the current discovery, then you can get that added in. At the end of the process or too near a court date, it's too late to do that. Mike, let me shift. I want to leave some time for questions. I know there, there will be many. Um, let's just talk a little bit about Invoke and, and kind of looking into the future, which is the latest part of, of your career. Uh, tell us a little bit, maybe at a high level, about uh, what you look for uh, in investments from an Invoke standpoint, and tell us a little bit about uh, why Luminance was attractive to you. Well, we're, we're a little bit different in that um, Invoke is all composed of people who've um, run things or done things in technology in the past including a lot of technology people so we specialize in one area which is where um, we think there is a fundamental piece of technology so we're not the right people if you've got a great new e-commerce idea or um, a new online business idea what we're looking for is where there's fundamental difference in, in what can be done you know the, the, the internal saying we have is comes from you know, a wonderful scene in one of the Indiana Jones films. You know, we always take a gun to a knife fight, meaning that we don't really want to invest in a business unless it has an almost unfair advantage because technology can do things that can't be done beforehand. That's not to say there aren't great businesses where there isn't fundamental technology. Obviously, there are, but those are the ones that we look for. So, what we're looking for is something where the technology has made something that matters possible that just wasn't possible before. And, uh, and we have the technical expertise to do that, and then we have people that actually know how to add all the things around that to make that a business. And uh, we have relatively little competition in that respect, in that many of the VC firms are people from a finance background who know a lot about financing things, but are not in the same position of being able to evaluate this very high-end technology and then knowing what it takes to get around it um, to actually make that work. So we like to work with those sort of things. Um, to look at most areas. Um, obviously, we're very comfortable with anything to do with information and data uh, and that sort of thing. Um, and so, you know, when someone brought us um, an AI approach to cybersecurity that works rather like the immune system, where it would learn what was normal and self, and therefore could see an attack, even if the attack had never been seen before, that was the big difference. And then we were very happy to do that. <coughs> um, Another area was in money laundering and, and uh, bank fraud, and again, technologies that could find things going on that you didn't know what you were looking for beforehand. In cancer treatment, uh, the ability to understand what a cancer tumor is going to do next, um, which can be done with AI. So many different application areas. In Luminance case, um, the idea that you were going to go through 10 million documents using keywords um, and the time and expense of that, or that you were going to try and sit there and manually create regular expressions for clauses is just absurd, um, especially in a changing world when clients want more and more. And so what you needed was technology that could do all of that stuff, but actually move on to the next level. And, and you know, just for example, by reading example clauses, start to understand what they look like 
and then do things like work out clauses that were related or uh, anomalies or something where you know this contract had something drafted that um, is a problem different to all the other ones um, or even you know getting up to a high level all of this deal looks like there might be bribery involved um, so these are moving way beyond the current approach and, you know a lot of the old keyword approach if you try and do a clause definition by manually creating keywords it's exactly the same problem as my tree bush um, you know, you might have the illusion that you think you've understood stuff, but actually your accuracy against the problem. All right, I've got a long list of questions, but I want to turn to some Q&A, Mike, because I think uh, folks out there, I want to give them the chance to ask some of their own questions. So I'm going to cut myself short here. And uh, let's go over to some Q&A. Um, let me see what has come up. All right. Apologies, I'm going to skip folks' names uh, just because some of them are hard to read here, but I can certainly ask a question. Mike, the first one I have is a question of can you please talk us through the difference between AI and machine learning at a high level? Why do you think there's lots of confusion around this? Um, my, my, my sort of flippant answer is from a James Bond film where one of the villains says, names is for tombstones, baby, um, in that, you know, I wouldn't get too too worried about it. Machine learning um, is, is obviously by definition a subset of AI because it's one where you're being data driven. Um, what tends to happen, and these things shift around, is if you're in research circles these days, machine learning tends to be applied to the concept of pattern recognition. So working out what the essence of a dog image is or what particular sounds make uh, a part of speech. And people, are, uh, if you're gonna get very sort of formal about it, they're using AI to include um, inference, so learning inferences. Uh, however, it turns out that some of the most powerful new methods for inference learning are machine learning based anyway. So. We, we could we could have very erudite discussions with experts about this. Um, and from a point of view of, of today's audience, I would just take it back to my engineering approaches. Does it work? Thank you. Uh, next one I have here. My uh, general experience, having worked as a lawyer across the UK and Africa, is that compared to other industries, the legal profession is less open to the application and value of AI which may be down to the training and work culture, so the mindset that lawyers have. What is your opinion on this? And do you think that the true global adoption of AI needs a radical shift in lawyers' thinking? Um, the two professions that are the most um, resistant, I'm afraid, are the medics and the doctors. <laughs> and um, one can have a, a, you know, an interesting look at this. I think in the case of the medics, um, it is an incredibly uncertain profession in that you have a patient come in, you make a diagnosis, it turns out actually 11% of the time you're wrong, um, and then you do a treatment and then you change your mind. And medics understand that, but the general public don't. And so there tends to be a little bit of an illusion that the doctor always has the answer. And so what you saw for a long time was a pushback on the idea that the doctor could be getting it wrong. 
However, we're in the modern world and people have measured it. And as I say, it's 11% and that leads to people dying as well as massive costs. And so the medical profession now is, uh, is embracing a lot of these technologies that help them uh, make better decisions. I think the lawyers historically came from a, an area where there was a certain mystique involved in the process. And then the other thing was that there was a very positive acknowledgement of the idea of a very formal process. So um, the idea that you know this argument in a very syntactic way um, could be applied and this would lead to this response. And of course, the real practical uh, application of law requires a lot more subtlety and insight among the professionals than that. It's just generally not acknowledged. It gets wrapped up in that word wisdom sometimes, the wise old lawyer. Um, so I think that it is fair to say that there has been a, it has been one of the slower areas. I think the other thing which is an interesting idea I'd, I'd be interested to hear what people think of is one of the big changes that's happening in the world is we're having to let go of the illusion of certainty. And in fact, with this COVID thing more than ever, you know, at the end of the day, people just don't know what this virus is going to do. And we've spent a long time, especially in the last hundred years, with the idea that there are right answers and there are certainties and you just need to get to the certainty. Well, everything AI and my field tells you is that the world is an uncertain place um, and it is probabilistic, it is complex, you have to embrace that uncertainty. And the, the next hundred years are all about embracing uncertainty. And so that's a little bit of a different approach in some ways. Um, but you know, the one thing I would say is that the idea of the lawyers um, not uh, working like this is, is out of date. Um, the, um, the approach that you're seeing with modern law firms, they, they completely understand the value that they're adding to the clients is, is by adding the special bit not about the volume um, and they're using technologies to do that and so i think there's a big change going on um, we move from that old sort of you know historic idea of someone uh, you know in the 1850s with a glass of claret and, uh, sort of telling the client they didn't need to worry about things to the modern world where people you know are getting much better service in terms of helping their businesses and the lawyers I guess the only thing I would add there is it's it's definitely not a homogenous approach. There's a lot of silos out there. So, you know, when we look at litigation, we probably see higher adoption rates uh, than we do in other areas. There are some regions, but I do see this starting to flat, starting to flatten out to the person who asked the question. Um, we are seeing it from our client base, uh, as I've shared, 225 clients pretty evenly dispersed around the world different practice areas, we're, we're seeing it come together. But I think historically, there has been differences by practice area, certainly, and by uh, geography. And there've been drivers for that, largely data-driven, right? In some cases, discovery uh, in certain markets, like the US, where the discovery process is much larger. Um, and, uh, and we've seen technology adapt, adopted more quickly for, for those reasons. Yeah, I think when the federal rules of civil procedure came in in the U.S., um, it was, wasn't a debate. You had to look to start to use because the volumes you were going to get. Yeah. yeah. I've got an interesting one, Mike, uh, that I caught my eye, so I'm going to ask it. 
Um, at Invoke, what is the strangest reported application of AI that somebody's brought to you? Oh, um, I've had a whole series of wonderful ones. Um, and remember, AI is often used as a marketing term. Um, I had a, uh, a chap who came in who invented a new musical scale. And, uh, and it was all related to energy levels of the atoms in the universe or something. And uh, I sat there, I had a very old colleague um, who listened to all of this and, and AI was invoked as to how the, the notes were developed. And at the end of it, my colleague just said, but can you play Elvis Presley on it? And, um, and the answer was no. And so that one didn't get funded, I'm afraid. Um, funny enough, another musical one. I had a, a choral scholar from, from Cambridge come in with an AI search engine where you could sing. So this is, with Shazam, you have to have exact recording. But this, you could sing a tune and, uh, and it would tell you what the tune was. And, um, and he demonstrated the product by, by singing, um, uh, I think it was a piece of, of um, Vivaldi perfectly. And so I did exactly what I just told you all to do, which is I decided to test the real problem. So I asked our receptionist to step into the room who did a wonderful rendition of Material Girl by Madonna. And I can <laughs> say no single note was in the right place. And, um, and it failed. And, uh, and so that one didn't get invested, but it, you know, there's actually a, an important point there, which is you have to test these things the way they will be used in the real world. You know, testing something in a lab in AI is irrelevant. Mm. If it's supposed to work on a street, you have to go and stand in the street. Right. Well, I'll switch to kind of maybe a more uh, serious uh, question than, than that one. Um, what do you think of comments uh, from people like Elon Musk uh, where he talks about AI being more dangerous than nuclear weapons. Um, <laughs> well, I'd much rather deal with an AI than a nuclear weapon at the moment. Um, <laughs> no, it, it is the power of the technology is 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 even in its narrow sense phenomenal. It will enable things to happen that couldn't happen before, um, and. But I do think there's sometimes in those kind of comments this broad assumption that a narrow AI leads to broad AI. Um, I think overall the likelihood of the technology being um, able to do good is far higher than bad for narrow AI. So it's interesting, it's a debate, um, but coming back to my engineering approach to life, it's not something I worry about. Systems that actually work. You know, if we can stop cars running over pedestrians, for example. Mike, I'm gonna, I'm gonna close this out, but one last one which just popped up, which I think uh, goes to some of the discussion we've had here today, and maybe just a quick answer. Uh, someone has asked, how possible is it to implement AI solutions for law firms that use less frequently spoken languages like Polish? Um, which comes to the language issue. Maybe a quick answer from you and then I'll wrap us up. The important thing about how these technologies work is they're completely data-driven. So um, you, uh, all you have to do is have documents in that language. So a law firm in Poland would presumably have lots of Polish documents and it's not a problem. In fact, when I'm teaching, um, I've had people produce systems that do Klingon. Um, where they'll take uh, Klingon language and, and do that. It's actually not um, the way they work 
um, because they're learning by example, they are learning how the symbols work. Interesting enough, the modern translation systems like the Google Translate use exactly the same approach. So they have no interest in what the language is when they start to learn to translate it. They just need to see a lot of examples of it. Great. All right, well, I need to keep us on track here. I know uh, we've kind of concluded our hour, so let me just say uh, a special thank you to Dr. Michael Lynch for joining us today. I know I speak on behalf of everyone when I say we all really appreciate you taking the time, your thoughts about the vision and the future of artificial intelligence, specifically as it relates to the legal profession, so we thank you for that. Um, I also want to thank all the brilliant minds out there who are at work continuing to develop these technologies. Uh, allowing these visions that Mike talks about to become reality. I know several members of our tech team in Cambridge are on the call, and I'm sure there are many others out there across other organizations. Please continue doing the amazing things that you do every day. We admire you greatly. Uh, the positive impact you're having on the ecosystem of the legal profession uh, is real, um, and we appreciate your contributions. And certainly, thank you to all of our guests for joining. I hope you found this to be useful uh, and valuable session. Um, please feel free to submit any additional questions. Uh, we will get to those promptly and get back to you. And please also look out for the future thought leadership sessions that we will continue to hold uh, as we have gotten a lot of great feedback. Be safe, uh, enjoy the rest of your week. Thank you everyone for joining, really appreciate it. And thank you, Mike, again. <laughs>